Hello, this is Andy McGaffigan, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. What's up? It's Davo. Glad you're along on another edition of Clubhouse Conversation as we continue our quest to talk to every single living former Royal. And we ain't stopping until we get close, gosh darn it. Today, our guest is Andy McGaffigan, who pitched for the Royals from 1990 to 1991. Andy McGaffigan, in total, spent parts of 11 seasons at the major league level, both as a starter and primarily as a swingman, a long reliever out of the bullpen, a guy that could give you two and three innings, middle innings, late innings, whatever you needed. He threw strikes. Got the job done. 38-33 and 33 was McGaffigan's lifetime mark at the Major League level with 24 saves and a 3.38 ERA. McGaffigan was drafted and first came up with the Yankees, then also pitched with the Giants, the Expos, the Reds, and the Royals. Andy McGaffigan, a guy I've always really respected because he's very open, very honest, very frank, and he'll make for a great interview here on Clubhouse Conversation as he joins us from Florida. Andy McGaffigan, first of all, welcome on to Clubhouse Conversation and, and update us. How's the family doing? How's everything going? We are doing very well. I had just returned home from a uh, trip to Seattle over the weekend, so I'm a little fuzzy, but uh, I got back last night, but we're doing great. Well, I traveled none, and I'm fuzzy every day, so <laughs> I understand the feeling. appreciate the sentiment. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So update everybody on what you're doing these days as far as work and family and all that good stuff. Well, I am a financial representative with the Northwestern Mutual Financial Network out of Milwaukee, and I've been doing that now. I'm in my 13th year, I believe, and uh, loving it, doing well. Uh, my family, and I, Jill and I have been married now. We're in our 33rd year of marriage. Wow. We have three kids. Uh, my youngest is getting married in September, so we're planning for our last wedding, <laughs> which is a big deal. And uh, all the kids are doing great. I've got two grandkids that live in Centerville, Indiana, and uh, they are eight and two, two couple of boys, Tristan and Gavin. And uh, Jill and I are doing great, absolutely. So good to hear. Uh, you're, by the way, you're probably going to laugh at me for this, but I actually have the Northwestern Mutual like 60-second theme song that they played during March Madness of those commercials. I actually have that on my iPod. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go. It fires me up, man. It's good music right there. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, uh, that's funny. One other question i got to ask you before we go back. Are you still rocking that killer mustache you used to have back in the day? Uh, it's, it's morphed into a, uh, a goat. And uh, it's a little bit trimmed up, a little bit more professional. Not quite uh, the big burly uh, mustache, but uh, a little bit more refined now. <laughs> That's great. Do your cl- <laughs> do your clients like bring old baseball cards to you, to you ever, or your coworkers to mess with you? Sometimes they do. Yeah. yeah. In fact, in my office, I have my my wife gave me a a present one time. It's all of my baseball cards that she had framed in a uh, all all the tops cards, and uh, so that was. That was nice to have, and so we're, uh, you know, people will look at that and they'll go, oh, my gosh, oh, look at that mustache, and <laughs> it gets to be kind of a funny conversation after a while. <laughs> well, yeah. let's uh, let's turn the time machine on then and go way back. So 
You went to Twin Lakes High School in West Palm Beach, Florida. Then you enrolled at Palm Beach JC for your first couple of years of college, and then Florida Southern for your last two. But before we talk about college, let's so let's talk about you know being drafted by the Reds out of high school. You were drafted in the thirty sixth round of nineteen seventy four, but chose to go to college. Was that tempting at that time to, to sign that deal with the Reds? Well, it was tempting only in that you know it was my first blush with uh, being recruited or being even considered uh, to be able to play in professional baseball. Um, you know, I had zero experience as to what to even expect. It totally came out of the blue, so it was uh, very un-, un it was unexpected. And so, what I had to do was get some confidence, get some resources around me to figure out all right, is this a legitimate deal or, you know, or what? So when I got drafted, I, I, I coincidentally got a, a scholarship to go play at the community college, which was really convenient because, you know, I didn't really have any plans after school other than to go to work. I was planning on going and banging nails and being a carpenter. My neighbor across the street said, hey, I got a job for you anytime you want a job. And huh. and I said, well, okay, that's a good fallback. But then when I got drafted, and then all of a sudden the world kind of changed a little bit. It was at that time that I, I really, for the first time ever, considered an opportunity of, of playing pro ball. I, it, I never thought I was, A, good enough, or B, that anybody was even looking at me. And lo and behold, you know, the Cincinnati Reds and some other teams, as it turned out, were kind of interested in me. And so that was, uh, was kind of flattering. But when we started looking at the opportunity to go play in, in, in pro ball, you know, they said, well, you know, there's not going to be a bonus. So that was kind of a, you know, all right. So what are, what are we really talking about? I says, well, we'll give you a, a plane ticket to Billings, Montana, and $400 a month or some crazy number like that, maybe not even that much, I don't remember, and a chance to go play pro ball. And I looked at my dad, and my dad looked at me, and my mom looked at me like, really, are you serious? <laughs> and, and so I said, well, we're going to have to think about this, I think. And so we all sat around the kitchen table, as you might expect, and kind of talked it out and hashed it out and talked about the pros and cons and the money or the lack of money and, you know, how many guys actually make it to the big leagues from A-ball and, or from Billings, Montana. And, you know, the decision became pretty clear. Yeah. And I think we probably ought to take the take the education and, you know, we'll we'll see what happens later on. So it, it it was a good decision. Well, it happened again then. So after your first couple of years there at Palm Beach JC, the fifth round, the White Sox came calling. So the second time around, was it the same reasons you didn't sign that time as well? Yeah, it was primarily, you know, I it was the winter phase, January draft. So it was a different, you know, January draft back then was, was not as strong of a, a draft situation as the June draft is. And so... You know, here again, by that time, I had caught the eye of a lot of different colleges and universities, and and I, you know, I had a little bit more of a bargaining uh, decision or bargaining chip uh, on the table now, and but essentially it was the same offer. It was five hundred dollars a month, and this time I get to go to Sarasota instead of Billings, Montana. <laughs> so a little bit better. I like Sarasota better than Billings. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh, but by that time, like I said, I had you know, eight or 10 or 12 or so college scholarships around the country to go play at four-year institutions, you know, after I got out of the junior college or the community college. And so here again, the numbers weren't weren't in my favor. So I said, you know, I'll, I'll go get, I'll go do the degree. So 
was, again, another good decision. Good, you know, it was a good opportunity. It was a ego booster. It was you know confirmation that you know I am progressing. That there are people that are interested in me, and that I am I'm having success in pursuing my baseball career. Uh, but the finances, you know, I needed some money, and uh, they weren't offering any, so I took what I could take. What was what was your major in college? Well, in community college, I studied advertising design, which I'm absolutely not doing anything with at all. <laughs> uh, and then in, at Florida Southern, I ended up studying education, which I'm, I guess I'm using on some level, but uh, not professionally. I'm not a teacher or a college coach or professor or anything. So, um, but you know, I got a good liberal arts education, and uh, have been uh, I've been pretty fortunate. So. Well, while you were at uh, Florida Southern, you made the, the right decision. It looks like sixteen and two with a two seven nine, and you helped lead them to the uh, Division Two National Championship in nineteen seventy eight. But then the Yankees took you in the sixth round, following that season, and this time you did sign. So, what do you remember about draft day, and, and how exciting was that going to the Yankees? Well, it was surprising in that uh, I did not expect the Yankees to to draft me. Every time I stepped on a baseball field, no matter wherever I was, on as a you know, for Florida Southern, especially my senior year, there was a Dodger scout that was there. He was there everywhere I went. I mean, you couldn't miss the blue hat, and you know, he was he was always had this radar gun up every time I was throwing, whether I was in the bullpen or whatever. And so I was I was thinking, if I do get drafted, it'll probably be the Dodgers. Well, what I didn't recognize or realize was that. Um, Brian Butterfield, who's the third base coach now, I think for the for the uh, uh, Boston Red Sox, his dad, Jack Butterfield, was the director of player development for the Yankees, and Jack was at a lot of our games, and all I just kind of assumed that he was there because of Brian. Well, he was there because of Brian, but he was also there because he was recruiting or scouting me, and. Uh, so I ended up getting drafted by the Yankees in the sixth round, and um, the the day I got drafted, my dad and I were out playing golf, and you know it wasn't like I was sitting around by the phone. And uh, I got home after playing golf with my dad, and my mom said, "Well, uh, the the Yankees have have given you a call, and Jack Butterfield from the Yankees." And I said, "Well, that's that's cool." So I gave. Mr. Butterfield a call and he said well Andy I just wanted to let you know that we've drafted you in the sixth round and and we are so excited to have the potential to have you as as a Yankee in our organization and I said I am too and so I uh, they came down and and we signed and I had got a little bit of a bonus nothing special I think it was like $6,500 I mean chump change for today but <laughs> but uh you know, for a senior with no eligibility uh, to even be drafted in that high of a round, unless he was going to be a, you know, a top round draft pick, I, you know, I felt like it was about it was a pretty good pretty good draft pick. So, uh, of course, I I chose to sign and and uh, kind of as they say, the rest is history. Yeah. Well, so it's been a while since most of us saw you pitch, obviously. So refresh everybody about what you threw, what pitches, and then where you sat at, where you topped out at, et cetera. Well, I was a fastball slider changeup pitcher. I was primarily a reliever, although I did do some starting there at Kansas City. I also started for, well, I started for most everybody uh, when I, who I played for. 
um, I was pretty versatile in that I could I could throw a lot of innings out of the bullpen. I could get you know, I have a lot of the ability to throw a lot of appearances. So I recovered quickly and I threw a lot of strikes. Didn't walk a lot of guys. Had a good strikeout to base on ball ratio. I think my best fastball was maybe 93, 90, 94 at the best, maybe tops. Um, but I threw a good fastball, a sinker, you know, sinking fastball and a running fastball, a uh, slider and changeup. Lots of ground balls. I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I got a lot of outs, and so it's funny because I, I had a better ERA. I think if I my memory serves me. I think I had a better ERA against left-handers than I did against right-handers. <laughs> and so when I was like with Montreal, Buck Rogers would bring me in many times in lefty situations because I could get left-handers out huh. instead of the typical lefty-lefty, righty-righty scenario. Yeah. And so it was uh, interesting, though. Well, your first summer in pro ball then was split between A ball and then in 1979 and 1980, you were in double A. I want to talk about that 1980 team. Uh, you were on the Nashville Sounds that year. You were the Southern League Pitcher of the Year, 15-5 and five with a 2.38, and then the team won 97 games. Stump Merrill was your manager. Now, I've read that uh, MILB.com calls that the 69th best minor league team in history. And you were uh, playing with Buck Showalter and Steve Balboni and Pat Tabler. So what are your favorite memories when you think back to that summer? Well, um, when I started out that summer, I was a starter, and I was struggling. I couldn't get anybody out. And and uh, Pat Dobson was our pitching coach, great pitching coach. And uh, he, uh, you know, they moved me to the bullpen. And I forget what month it was. It was early, though. It was April might have been April, maybe May, and it was it, it made me angry. I was very frustrated and angry that they that they moved me out of the starting rotation and into the bullpen. And so what they did, you know, they just wanted to give me a, a chance to kind of reconnect and re, and find myself again. I took it as a slap, and uh, so it you know kicked me into a higher gear, and I went out there and and. I pitched really angry for many, many uh, appearances. Huh. And it's probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it got me out of my uh, routine and forced me to think differently about how I approach a hitter and how I approach the game and how I approach my training, et cetera. So I started working out harder. I ran harder. I did more sit-ups. I was, I was ticked off. And so I think I won like 12 games in a row out of the bullpen. And, uh, you know, and my ERA just kept dropping and dropping and dropping and dropping. And, you know, I, I just, it just clicked. Everything just kind of clicked. And then I was put back into the rotation. And, uh, you know, it just ended up being a great year. Um, probably I'd like to think I – I, I had a, I was a potential candidate to get called up, even though I was a uh, you know from Double A to the big leagues. But I had pulled at my last start of the year, I pulled a pec muscle, muscle in my chest, and and I couldn't pitch anymore, and so that was a real frustration. So, um, but we had a great team. My goodness, we could we flat out just beat some people to death um, 
with with the rotation we had and with the you know the lineup we had i think i think it was it was it was one of the better teams i ever played on and so we just knew we were going to do some big things that year after you know we got everything settled down and guys just it was a fun time it was a fun summer i'll put it that way it was a fun summer to go to the ballpark yeah, you mentioned there's quite a few Royals connections there. Your pitching coach would go on to be the pitching coach for the Royals, and then there was yep. uh, Balboni and Tabler. Do you have any good memories of uh, Steve Balboni and Pat Tabler? Well, I played against Bonesy for years. We played against each other in college. He went to Eckerd College, and I went to Florida Southern, and we were pretty big, you know, pretty big rivals back then. Um, but Bonesy, I played with him all the way through the minor leagues, A ball, and then again in Double A, and then in Triple uh, A a little bit. And then, of course, he ended up getting traded, and and then I got called up and got traded. Um, but I just remember Bonesy hitting some monster shots that you know just disappeared into the darkness. You know, they'd go up out of the. He used to hit these high, towering type home runs, and uh, just amazing. Almost like he missed them, and then also he just kept going and going and going, and. Um, so he'd hit bombs like that, but you know, Bonesy was always a great guy. You know, good first baseman, um, good teammate. Never heard him say about four or five words a day. Um, <laughs> but you know, he just he just kind of went to work. He showed up and went to work and worked hard. And you know, he was just a he was just a good guy, good teammate. Tabler was the same way. Tabby was you know, Pat was a little bit more talkative and a little bit more uh, sociable. But you know, again good worker, good hard worker, and, uh, you know, coming up through the Yankee organization, you learn how to work hard or you don't stick around too long. And uh, But unfortunately, you don't stick around anyway because you get traded. So <laughs> yeah, at right? least you did back then. You know, you were just you were just fodder for the trade mill. And, and as it turned out, that was probably a good thing for me. Well, yeah, so you started at 81 in AAA with Columbus, 8-6 and six with a 3.23 ERA. Then the Yankees called you up in September. So do you have a, a cool memory or a cool story how you got that first call to the big leagues? Yeah, you know, the year started out that year. I, got, I was hurt. I was supposed to be – I was scheduled to be the fifth starter that year yeah, out of spring training, and I hurt my elbow. I pulled a muscle in my elbow the first start of the year, of the spring. So I was on the DL the entire spring training and then another 58 or 68 days during the regular season while we were in Columbus. And so very frustrating. You know, they sent me down to get some rehab work down in, uh, I guess, extended spring training and that in, you know, the Bradenton, Sarasota area. And they did kind of a co-op thing with a couple of other teams. And, and that was a, you know, real frustration. But I, I slowly, slowly, slowly started to regain, you know, flexibility and strength and the ability to throw. And and Frank Verdi was our manager. Sammy Ellis was our pitching coach. And when I I got back to Columbus, which was May, April, May, late April, early May, something like that, I could barely throw. And, I mean, I could throw, but it was like I was Ross Grimsley throwing. <laughs> Just barely getting it to the – I mean, nothing against Ross Grimsley. He had a great career, but he didn't throw very hard. 
And so I was throwing less than batting practice speed. And they started me. They put me in a couple of games. They started me. And uh, my first game, I'm telling you, I, I barely got it to the plate, but it didn't hurt to throw. But I had no zip on the ball. I had not, no real, not to go off, but I was throwing it under batting, batting practice speed. So I was getting out. So I remember I, I won my first outing. And I think I threw five innings. And I was on a very strict pitch count, and I think Frank maybe fudged it a little bit so that I could, you know, get my first win to, you know, kind of get me over the hump. And and then I had another start, and I did well, and then I did well, and then all of a sudden I started gaining some arm strength, and then I started getting it into that nitro zone. And about for the next five or four games, I just got waxed. Uh, it was ugly, and. Uh, and then I kind of broke through that and got up into, you know, higher velocities. And I ended up having a pretty good year. But, you know, when they when they started calling guys up, it was uh, early September. They started, you know, letting people know, yeah, you're coming up, you're coming up. And nobody had said anything to me. And so here again, I'm getting frustrated because here I am. I've, I've basically overcome a, a pretty major injury, and I'm throwing the ball great. Uh, we're doing well. I've got a good ERA. I've, you know, I think I deserve to get called up. And so finally, we were standing out in the outfield, and Sammy, you know, was out. We were all out in right field. Me and two or three other guys that were going to get called up, and and Sammy Ellis called me. You know, he was standing over there, and uh, let me turn that off. And he was uh, looking around, talking to different guys, and he looked at me and he says. What's wrong with you? I said, well, I'm a little frustrated. I, I, I think I deserve to get called up. And he goes, well, you big dummy, you're going, you're getting called up. I went, well, how do you know? He says, because they told me, you idiot. <laughs> and so, you know, Sammy, is, is, uh, he was always such a, a good pitching coach and a good guy for me. And, and uh, so that kind of made my day and <laughs> made my year, actually. Made, You know, so... That was a big deal, but the problem was we were, as in Columbus, we were in the playoffs. You know, we were in Columbus, we had another great team. And so we were in the International League playoffs, and then in the International League there's also a second layer of playoffs called the Governor's Cup. So you take, I guess, the winner of the first half, the winner of the second half, or the East and West or North and South divisions, I forget how it was. And we were the Columbus Clippers in in '79 and '80 had both won the the IL and also the Governor's Cup. And so this year we had already won the IL, and now we were in the process of of competing for the Governor's Cup as well. <laughs> so this went on and on and on and on. We had a playoff against Richmond, which was AAA for the the Braves, and. Uh, we had three or four or five rainouts in a row. It was crazy, awful weather. And the frustrating part was I knew I was getting called up, but they weren't going to call me up until after the the governor's kept playoffs, which to me was stupid. You know, I'd rather be in New York than in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, But ultimately the season ended, and we won the governor's cup as well. So it was the third time in a row that – you know, third year in a row that we had won both, which I guess was a big deal. Yeah, well. Yeah, it yeah, didn't mean a lot to me, but, you know, it was a big deal for the organization and, and I guess their payback for 
the Columbus uh, organization, you know, the ball club in Columbus. So right. Uh, but, uh, well, you 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 made it in two games then in New York in '81. Your first one was a relief outing for Dave Rigetti, three scoreless innings. You finished that year then with two appearances. And then, so you went into 82 with the Yankees at spring training, but then on March 30th, you were traded for Doyle Alexander to the Giants. So were you kind of heartbroken by that, excited? And what do you remember about the moment that you found that out? I was uh, frustrated again because here I had always wanted to be, you know, a Yankee. You know, I came up through the system. I thought I deserved and, and should be in New York. But I had such a bad spring in the spring of 82 that I, I couldn't have gotten you out. Um, and it was awful. I mean, not only pitched poorly, but had bad luck on top of it. And so it got to be so bad that one spring game against, I think, the Rangers or something, Bob Watson was was a good guy. Boomer, Bob came up to me after I just gave up a a line drive base hit that hit the bag and kicked into the dugout and three runs, you know, crazy run, you know, stuff like that was going to happen. Um, he came up to me and he goes, man, I've seen some, I've seen some bad luck in spring training, but you might be, you might take the cake on this. And, you know, so when I ended up getting traded, it was almost like a reprieve from the governor and I got a chance to get out of there and, and reestablish myself. And I got traded so late in the season and spring training that, you know, the chances of making the Giants roster was slim and none, and, you know, slim had just left, so I had no chance. So I ended up, you know, starting the year in Phoenix, and again, my troubles continued. I I, I just, my delivery was something off of my delivery or whatever it was, but I just, I struggled. I struggled early. And, you know, when you struggle, when you when other people have seen you throw before, they kind of go, well, he, you know, he's just struggling. But when I got over to Phoenix, over to AAA with the Giants, new organization, new coach, new pitching coach, new teammates. I didn't know anybody on the team, literally. I'd never played against any of the guys, and I'd never – nobody knew me. So – and then I start throwing, and they're like, wow, why did we draft this guy? You know, why did we pick up this this guy? This guy can't get anybody out. And so then, you, you know, you start pressing, and it, it – you know. But it turned out okay. I ended up spending a long, hot summer in Phoenix. I don't think I won but one or two games, maybe one, and uh, had a monster ERA. I got hurt again that summer. I jammed my hurt my lower back, and it was a difficult year. But I got called up in September of that year, and I think that was kind of the rest is history. Yeah, 83, you spent the whole season with San Francisco. You played under Frank Robinson. So then 84, spring training begins. You're getting ready for a third season with the Giants. But then, again, March 31st, you got sent to Montreal on a trade. And I know there's like a really bizarre and cool story how you found out that uh, you were the player to be named later. You found out from the pitching coach, right? Exactly. We were, we were playing. Um, hang on a second. I thought I'd turn that off. <laughs> we were playing the A's in the Bay Bridge series. And um, we were over in Oakland. And we were just going through batting practice and stuff. And then I went over to, to guard one of the pitchers that was, I think it was Atley, Atley Hammaker, who was throwing on the side, uh, just getting ready for their start in three days, um, you know, doing their bullpen work. So I'm, I'm guarding the, the pitcher. And from, you know, batting practice, 
line drives coming towards the bullpen. And the pitching coach, Herm Sturette, came up to me, and he said, well, we're going to really miss you. <laughs> and I looked at Herm, and I said, uh, what are you talking about, Herm? <laughs> and he had this, all of a sudden he had this, oh, crap, look on his face <laughs> like, I just, I just spilled the beans, and I think I'm in trouble. And so he said, oh, uh, well, uh, Skip needs to talk to you. <laughs> oh, okay, Herm. It, I I kind of thought this was going to happen. I'd read it, and you know, it'd been in the papers, and you know, talking about potential trade rumors, and you know, all this kind of craziness. And so um, I went in, and there was uh, I think it was Tom Haller and uh, Frank Robinson and somebody else. I forget who else. They said, "Well, we've uh, we've just traded you to the Montreal Expos," and I went. Really? They said, yeah, Fred Brining, who was another right-handed pitcher that they had traded over, I guess, in the fall or sometime over the winter, he was hurt. And so they were claiming damaged goods, and so they wanted another player. So me and Max Venable, I got traded, and so did Max Venable. Max went to AAA, and I went to the big leagues. And uh, so I felt like, quite frankly, as bad of a team as we had in 83, I thought we were going to have a worse team in 84 in the, with the Giants. So I felt, personally, I said, I, when I told my wife, Jill, I said, babe, I think we just got traded to the World Series. I said, we're going from the outhouse to, I think, maybe the penthouse in the American League East, or the National League East. And so I met the team in, in Houston, and, you know, off we went to another adventure. Yeah, well, you were so you were there for half of '84, and then it happened again. This time to the Reds, you got traded. So by this point, you got to be saying, "What the heck do I have to do?" Right? Well, yeah, you start shaking your head, but you also kind of wonder what's wrong with what's wrong with the this, you know what's wrong with the talent evaluation here. <laughs> yeah, right. And, <laughs> you know, I was throwing great in Montreal, and you know sometimes you get traded because you're not doing so well. Sometimes you get traded because you are doing well. And you know they need uh, some help. It's like right now we're we're coming up on the the trade deadline in MLB, right? Yeah. And so there's going to be a lot of guys that are going to be traded here this next this week or next week, right? Is it, when is it? August one? Tomorrow. It's tomorrow. Yeah. It's tomorrow. Okay. Yeah. I knew it was soon. And so you know, there's going to be a lot of guys that are going to be changing uniforms today and tomorrow. And so, uh, but that's part of the game. And so it was July. My daughter was born on July the 31st, and we got traded to a week and a half before that. So it was, what, July 20th, maybe, something like that. Huh. Um, you know, again, I'm sitting at home getting ready to go to the ballpark. I've been pitching well. Bill Verdon was our manager. Great guy. Uh, but, you know, just that was a team. That ball club had so much talent. It was unbelievable, but there was no cohesiveness there. There was no um, – it just didn't, it did not gel. I mean, we had, for example, we had uh, Gary Carter, Hall of Famer. Uh, we had Steve Rogers, Charlie Lee, uh, Bill Gullickson. No, Gully wasn't there. I got traded for Gully. Or, no, no, Gully was there the first time. <laughs> uh, I got you – because know, I got traded to Montreal twice. Uh, Gully, um, you had uh, J. 
Jeff Reardon, you had Tim <clears throat> Tim Wallach, um, Tim Raines, Andre Dawson. Agreed. I mean, unbelievable team. Uh, but there was no, I mean, it was hard to play there because nobody was happy. It seemed like they were all disenchanted or, or, or whatever it was. Good group of guys, really enjoyed playing with the guys. But, man, we had a hard time putting some strings together and running off some numbers. But So I ended up getting traded in the middle of the season to Cincinnati. And my daughter is two week, almost you know, two weeks overdue by this time. So I call up Woody Woodward, who was the GM for the Reds, and they were on the West Coast. And I said, Woody, um, here's my situation. I'm, I'm looking forward to being a part of the Reds team, but uh, my daughter is two weeks overdue, and she's our first baby. And he goes, well, we're not going anywhere. We're like 24 out, and we're on our West Coast trip. We're, you know, just meet us whenever you, you know, have the baby and meet us as soon as you can. And so we hung around Montreal for another, you know, several days and finally had the baby on July the 31st, August the 1st. I flew out to Cincinnati and uh, they joined us 10 days, you know, my wife and daughter and uh, joined us 10 days later in Cincinnati and and I was a Cincinnati Red. But what a good team I thought we were going to have in, in Montreal. Hmm. And then, you know, I get traded to Cincinnati and this is a team that is in deep turmoil. <clears throat> Vern Rapp was a manager. Um, we had Dave Parker was on that team, Ronnie Oster, Dave Concepcion, Buddy Bell, and um, had all these guys. Good Cesar Cedeno, uh, uh, um, oh gosh, I can't think of all the names. But at any rate, pretty good team. But Again, not a lot, not a lot of leadership, and some <clears throat> unfortunate uh, bad seasons at bad times for players, and and then Pete got traded over there. Yeah. So I got traded over there in, in July, and Pete got came over I think in August, late August, and the moment that the the ballpark or the ball club heard or got caught rumor that Pete was coming over as the player manager, holy cow! Everything in the world changed, and uh, you know, attitudes changed. I think we ended up having an unbelievable late August and September run, although we were running nowhere. We didn't have any place to go because you know we were not really good. Didn't have a much of a record, but the the ball club had changed, and now the, you know Pete Rose is back with Cincinnati, and the whole town woke up, the organization woke up. Um, it was it was like. Um, it was like the big part of the big red machine was back, and it became a different a different world. Yeah, well, amazing. Well, eighty five, you were there as well. So, what was it like playing with you know with and under Pete Rose? And then, in your opinion, should he be in the Hall of Fame or not? Um, playing with Pete was it was so difficult for him, you know, as not as a player but as a player manager, and so you know he was a very capable manager he, he he made you know good baseball moves and obviously to be able to compartmentalize the manager part from the player part he had to have some good support so he had guys like tommy um oh 
my mind is just mush today. <laughs> uh, Tuck, uh, Tommy Helms. Tommy Helms was on the bench. He played with Tommy Helms back, you know, when he played for the Reds back in the 70s. Um, but he had veteran players like Tony Perez and, you know, Concepcion and, and you know, guys that, that really didn't need a lot of management, not a lot of hands-on, you know, fell off the lineup and, and, and let's go play the game. But it was hard for Pete because, you know, like if he came over just ha- halfway to toss a ball after, the, after an out, you know, they would count that as a trip. Uh, from the manager to the pitching man. Oh, yeah. So, you know, all of those little goofy things he had to uh, be very careful about. Um, but Pete was, you know, he was doing a couple things. He was chasing Ty Cobb, and he was trying to manage his hometown Cincinnati, his beloved hometown Cincinnati Reds, you know. Um, so he's learning how to manage. He'd never managed before, never in the minor leagues, never in winter ball or you know, so he'd just been around forever, and he'd seen a lot of managers. Obviously, managed, played under Sparky, and and uh, he'd seen a lot of different managers, and plus he knew the game. So, but he had a lot of help. He had a lot of good help. Um, whether he belongs in the Hall of Fame or not, um, I have some opinions about that. I'd rather not say. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, there are there are rules. And the rules of the game are, you know, you don't bet on baseball. And I don't, I don't know why he was given a lifetime suspension from, I guess it was Bart Giamatti, is that correct? Right, yep. Um, but I think there were probably, Bart probably had a lot of um, reasons. And for Pete to accept that, you know, that. That says something, I think, in and of itself as well. Is it sad? On one level, absolutely. You know, the best hitter in baseball, or one of the best hitters in baseball, the guy that's gotten the most base hits in, in the game. That's a big deal. It's unfortunate. But there are consequences to actions. And good, bad, or indifferent, um, it's, it's, it's sad for the game of baseball, but it's reality. You know, there are rules, there are laws, and there are, consequences uh, for the breaking of both and so very unfortunate well the winter of 1985 here in kansas city we were celebrating a world series championship and then you are back at it again getting traded back to montreal (laughs) now finally finally you would have four years in one place with montreal from 86 to 89 and entirely at the major league level under buck rogers and then uh you know your middle reliever for the majority of that time as well so 86 to 89 your favorite memories of those years Again, we had a great group of guys, and I kind of came into my own as a pitcher. I finally was able to find a home where I wasn't being bounced from being a starter to a long reliever to a short reliever to a back to a starter, back to sitting on the bench for two weeks, and on and on and on. And so I was able to kind of settle into a role and 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 had a manager, Buck Rogers, and a pitching coach, Larry Bernard, who were very consistent. Uh, Buck would say, you know what, guys, if you're going good, I'm going to pitch you. You're going to go out there. And if you're not going good, I'm going to try to get you in, but I'm going to go with a strong hand. And so we had a lot of guys that could, could throw. And I, again, was able to settle in and 
find my niche in that middle market and and middle to late. And, uh, you know, like I said, I threw a lot of strikes and I got a lot of guys out. So I was in a lot of close ball games, up one, down one, even. Uh, I would I could throw multiple innings in, in appearances. And so I got a lot of three-inning saves and uh, those types of things. And um, so I think that's where I've really hit my stride and found my, uh, you know, my consistent – uh, delivery and it was great with with Larry Bernard Bear. He was he was so such a calming, you know, steady Eddie factor. He didn't get too excited. He, you know, he was uh, you know he was just a good pitching coach. And Buck, you know, to his credit, he was consistent. You know, it didn't hurt that we had a really good team those years too, so that we were always we were in a lot of contention. We were in contention a lot of the a lot of the time, and so. Unfortunately, you know, so were the Mets and so were the Phillies uh, and, and Atlanta. You know, those are some pretty good ball clubs to have to to face and, and fight through in the National League East. Um, but, you know, having a, having a, going to the ballpark every day, knowing that there's a chance I might be in a game today, that was a big deal for me. And so that gave me the confidence that, you know, I could pitch in this league and you know, I could I could be one of the better relievers in this league, and and I you know I gave it I had an opportunity and I was able to prove it. Now, one guy I've got to ask you about that we love here in Kansas City is our color guy on TV that you played with. Very bizarre and great and funny guy with a big heart. What was it like playing with Rex Hudler? Do you have any good Rex Hudler memories or stories? Hud was beautiful. He was I I actually played with Ruck with Rex when he was we we got drafted the same year. 1978. He was the number one draft pick by the Yankees. He that year we had three number one draft picks. We had him, um, a guy named Brian, somebody, <laughs> Brian Ryder, Brian Ryder, and then another kid. I can't remember Matt something, but he was the first of the three draft pick, three number one draft picks the Yankees had that year, and he was a you know young stud out of. Uh, out of California that had an opportunity to go play football, I think, at Notre Dame as a wide out or wide receiver. Or, and he chose to, you know, take the money from Mr. Steinbrenner. And, you know, at the time, I think Rex signed for $125,000 as a mm-hmm. signing bonus. He was the number one draft pick for the New York Yankees and, and got $125,000. Back then, that was monster money, <laughs> absolute monster money. Now that's you know twentieth round pick money, but notwithstanding, Rex, he didn't have a great career with the Yankees. He bounced around a little bit, and he got called up. He made it to the to the Expos as a utility player. You know, Rex could play second, he could play short, he could play third, he could play first, he could play the outfit, he could do it all. But uh, the thing about Rex was he kept everybody loose because he was like, you know, Mr. Muscle in the locker room and. Yeah, he was always so uh, unpretentious and and lighthearted and just there to have fun, there to get to play the game and and just a great guy, a great teammate. And uh, I haven't talked to him in a couple of years, but if we did, he, we would, you know, he he is who he is. He's he's very genuine and very uh, uh, doesn't wear a lot of different uh, hats other than just being a great guy. 
and uh, so got to know and love him, and he's just a hoot. I did not realize that he's the color guy in Kansas City. Yeah, it's his. Yeah, it's his. Uh, what second or third year here? Third year, oh, I guess. Oh my gosh! Yeah, he he's beautiful. He was always a piece of work. <laughs> Kept everybody really, really loose. Yeah, you hear the stories of him eating bugs while with the Cardinals and all that classic stuff. So. He could do it. Yeah, he was. Yeah, that sounds like Rex. Cow milking and yeah, so. 1990, you went to spring training with the Expos again, but then were traded to the Giants April 7th. You made four appearances with the Giants your second time around there, but then April 30th, they released you. And then the the, the fun days in Kansas City that we like to remember, you as a Royal. So May 9th of 1990, you became a Royal. You got sent to Omaha. What made you choose KC to sign with? They were the only one that, that chose to sign me. I mean, it was kind of a weird time in my career. Felt like I was throwing the ball pretty well. But I couldn't get, uh, you know, it just took a while for, for my agent to to have somebody take a chance on me. Um, you know, my career in San Francisco ended uh, kind of, well, I think there were some question marks as to why I was released in the first place. But uh, that's, a different, that's a different story to go through. But, um, you know, Kansas City offered me an opportunity. And that's, you know, that's all I really wanted was an opportunity to keep throwing, keep pitching, because I was healthy, relatively young, you know, still effective, and uh, just needed a place to, to to prove myself again or to show that I can still throw. And uh, went to Omaha, wasn't real sure what Omaha was going to look like. Yeah, Well, I'll tell you what, after my San Francisco, you know, release, I came home, for it was like a week, and I started throwing again. In you know when I got back here and started, you know, just working out, staying in shape because I knew that most likely I was going to get picked up somewhere. And you know, pitching is so difficult. There are so many different little things that can throw a delivery off or a hitter off, and and you know I kind of got my body out of sync, and so it was interesting. Uh, one of the last appearances I had for the Giants was in San Diego, and Pat Dobson was the pitching coach in San Diego. And if there was anybody that knew me better than anybody else delivery-wise, mechanically, it was it was Pat Dobson and or Sammy Ellis. And so I called Dauber over in the locker room when I got to the ballpark, and I said, Dauber, there's something goofy in my delivery. I can't I can't see it. I can't figure it out. And I'm not getting a lot of help from my uh, group in, in San Francisco. If I happen to get in today, just you know, take a look and, and, and let's talk later. So I get in. Sure enough, I get in the ball game, you know, one of the innings, sixth, seventh inning, fifth inning, whatever it was. And I go through my warm-up pitches. And I – goodness, I am Mr. – <laughs> Maybe it's the Royals calling back. <laughs> yeah, that that ship has left the port. Um, but I I get through with my warm up pitches and I look over at Pat in the in the Padre. Hang on, I do need to get this. Hold on, no if, if that's okay with you. No problem. No problem. All right. Hey, buddy. All right. Very good. See ya. Bye. That was my son. <laughs> And, but at any rate, I, I got through with my warm-up pitches, and I look over at Pat, 
and he just kind of gives me a, a a sign that you know pitchers would always understand from a pitching coach. It was basically you just need to stay back a little bit over your backside a little bit, and it's you know pretty simple and you know not like you stood out in front of the dugout and gave me all this this big you know secret message or whatever. But he just said just stay back, you know, just keep stay back. But you know that I thought that was you know how nice is it to have a guy who's not your pitching coach still in your corner wanting to see you do well. You know, that's a big deal. That's a neat thing. And I ended up, you know, having a good inning and, and getting through it and I got trade I got released, you know, shortly after that. But when I got home I started I changed I, I I figured out a couple of things and some things started clicking in my delivery and, and then I go to I go to, to Omaha and I'm throwing that crap out of the ball. I'm throwing hard. Everything is right where it should be because I'm. I've now got my delivery back under, under control, and it's allowing me to to get guys out and and you know everybody's looking at me like, what are you doing here? The Giants released you. What you know? What in the world? And then when I get called up to Kansas City, I'm throwing the ball and you know Mike McFarland's my my catcher, and you know after about the second or third game, I remember. Mac, Mac came out to the mound. He goes, <laughs> he said, "Are the Giants on crack or what? what? What is the deal? What you know? You know, Mike. He's you know pretty expressive, and he's going. They must be insane. What are they doing, letting you go? And I said, Well, I don't know. We'll figure it out. But at any rate, end up having a you know pretty good time there and throwing the ball pretty well. So." Yeah, what what did you what do you remember about Omaha and Rosenblatt Stadium? Rest in peace, Rosenblatt Stadium. By the way, I love that place. Yeah, it was a, a very big old ballpark. Um, pretty good field, you know, good stadium. Uh, you know, pretty pretty much past its prime from an amenities perspective. But you know, the College World Series it had a lot of uh, a lot of. Uh, you know, memories from that, you know, reading about it and watching games there and, you know, but it was just a big old grand stadium. And, uh, but it, you know, it's time had passed and it was probably way past time to, to be replaced. Yeah. Um, but you know, good ballpark, convenient, uh, good lights, good playing surface, good mound. Locker room was a little shaky. Um, you know, dugouts were old. But you know what? I, I knew I wasn't going to be there long because I was either going to get released or I was going to get called up because I was throwing the ball that good. I was either going to get released because or because I wasn't throwing the ball good and they're not going to take a chance on a 34-year-old or a 33-year-old guy in AAA unless I can go help the big club. Which you did. So Yeah. 19, you got called up during that 1990 season. Now, when we look back, it's hard to imagine in Kansas City now the highest payroll in Major League Baseball in 1990 was the Royals, so they got picked to win the World Series by SI, and oh, then yeah. you know there was some, you know, Mark and Storm Davis got added, things didn't go as planned. So when you came up, the team was 23 and 25 when you came up to KC. So what do you remember about the mood in the clubhouse and around that team when you first came up? Um, turmoil. It was really there were some unhappy Indians in that in that. And that wigwam, that's for sure. Um, you know, Storm Davis was not throwing great. Um, he was not happy about he, 
I think Storm, in his mind's eye, made a bad decision on coming to Kansas City. Um, he wanted to be back with Oakland so bad. He missed the guys in Oakland. He had a great relationship with the guys in Oakland. Kansas City were, you know, wasn't a bad place to play. It just wasn't Oakland. Mark Davis came over, and he couldn't get anybody out. And so he was pressing like crazy. He was frustrated with himself and and just – I think he was physically not there. Uh, his elbow, I think, was hurt, but I think he chose to pitch anyway. You had Steve Farr and Jeff Montgomery who were frustrated because they had done a great job the year before and had a lot of saves between them. And, you know, one of those guys was, you know, they were probably thinking it was going to be the closer. And, you know, and so they were, it wasn't like there was a lot, they weren't broadcasting it, but you could tell they weren't happy. You know, they were still throwing good, but they weren't happy. Um, you know, Saves was hurt. I think that was the reason I got called up. Um, Gubazal was hurt or getting ready to get hurt. Um, I think George George Brett was, you know, he was having his typical year. Bo was having a great year. Uh, but, you know, I don't think, I don't know. It was just John Watham was the manager, and, you know, he was, good guy he was good to me and um but it was just like it was very similar in in um mood to the first year when i went to montreal in 84 uh, in, yeah in 84 they were um struggling and it was hard to they just couldn't find the handle and uh, good key people were having not great years and uh, everybody's, they've got this high, super, super high expectation of, you know, walking away with the with the division, and we were barely five. We weren't. Even, I don't think we were even 500, and so there was a lot of not finger pointings, but looking around like, well, we're not really doing well, and I don't really know why, and so somebody's gonna, somebody's gonna, somebody must be, you know, either not doing what they're supposed to be doing or, or whatever. Somebody, so it was just a difficult situation, difficult year. And, uh, you know, I I don't know if anybody, I, don't know, I know they had to have driven, you know, Mr. Sherholtz nuts because, you know, he's obviously the consummate professional when it comes to being a general manager. And now all of a sudden, you know the the guys at the front of the of the of the line that were making that were paid the huge money to come in and you know shore up everything else and make sure that you know that third starting uh, you know first second or third starter you know as a pitcher you know was Storm you know he was going to be you know one of the anchors one of the stoppers and then to have a guy that just ran off 45 or 48 or 50, however many saves Mark had with the Padres the year before, you know, had that guy come in. And literally, when Mark Davis was throwing, it was over. I mean, when he was with the Padres, when I when I was with the Expos, if the game was, was if Mark came in, mentally, you sacked up your crap because you're done. You're done. Your game is over. And, hmm. You know, he was that efficient. He was that effective. It was lights out, lights out. Wow. And uh, and then when he just he couldn't find the strike zone, he couldn't get his breaking ball over. He got 
you know, his mind went to a different place. And he became not even a good hit pitcher. He was just, he was not good. And what do you do with that? You know, what do you do with a guy? I don't I forget what they paid him. It was pretty big numbers for that day. And, you know, what do you do? There's not a whole lot of places to go there, so it was um, it was very funky. It was very weird. So, <laughs> so I kind of came in the locker room, and again, that was I'm thinking this is going to be a pretty good situation. To man, we can't get anybody out. We can't get anything going, and um, but it was a different time of year, different time of life. Well, you personally started off really great there. Your first 12 games, you had a one six zero ERA over 45 innings. One thing I wanted to ask you about that we talked several years back and you told me about this was the game in Toronto where you're talking to Tim Burke on the phone. And yeah, I was sitting in my underwear yeah. talking to Tim Burke. Yeah, tell that story. Well, I, you know, I, for the last five years, I've been a reliever, a middle to short reliever, all right? And that's essentially what my role was when I – yeah, when I came over to Kansas City, or so I thought. And then we're in Toronto, and uh, I'm on the phone. I'm talking to Tim Burke, who is in the locker room in Montreal, and I'm in Toronto. And so I'm just catching up on a few things. It's kind of, you know, I never missed a, a first pitch, and I never missed a national anthem. And so, um, yeah, I had plenty of time in my mind's eye. I was all good. And all I needed to do is just suit up, and I was out the door and ready to go. Well, all of a sudden, I'm on the phone. All of a sudden, somebody comes running in the door. They're going, you got a pitch. You're up. Aquino just blew out his arm or something. I'm like, what? <laughs> he said, you're starting today. I'm like, holy crap. So threw on my clothes real quick and uh, ran out to the bullpen had a chance to throw maybe 10 or 12, 15 pitches. And uh, then I, you know, I came in in the, the bottom of the first. And I think I threw five innings and, you know, had a good game. And and uh, from then on, I became a starter. I was a starter the rest of that year for the, for the Royals. And it's just, you know, to go from being a reliever to a starter – is a whole lot different than going from a starter to a reliever. <laughs> right. You know, but just preparation-wise, strength and, and uh, stamina-wise, it's a totally – it's like going from being a a miler to a sprinter uh, or from going from a sprinter to becoming a miler. And that's the better analogy. That's the more correct analogy. Now, you know, it's just a different world. And so, uh, if, you know, you can do it – I did it at first – you know, I started, and I, I think I went four and a third or four, five innings. I might have even gone five innings my first time out. But that's a long stint for a reliever. And then they had me start again, and I think I did well, and then I started again. And, you know, the thing that made me who I was was not as a starter. It was as a reliever, you know, because as a reliever, I knew that I could come in a lot of games. I could get innings. I could get outs. And I could make appearances, <clears throat> and I could do that regularly. Uh, that's a rare breed. Not everybody can throw two or three or four times in a week. I could. Um, 
But my downfall as a starter was it was hard for me to consistently carry it from start to start to start. Right. You know, there's that downtime, that lag time. That was very hard for me, and I didn't do it well. And so, you know, part of, of success is knowing what you do well and what you don't do well. And there are certain things that you can do to improve what you don't do well. But if you spend all your time working on things you don't do well, you know, instead of concentrating on things that do well, you know, you're, I think, maybe putting your eggs in the wrong basket in many respects, at any rate. Um, didn't end up being, you know, a, a significant starter for the Royals, but, you know, I think I was an effective pitcher for them for the time I was there. Yeah, well, it, one guy I wanted to ask you about, you play with a lot of talented guys like George and Frank and so on and so forth, but Bo Jackson, where does he rank among the athletes you played with, and do you have a favorite memory of him? Bo is just uh, he's a, a centennial kind of guy. You only see one of those kind of guys once every 100 years or so. And, um, you know, from a talent perspective, it was, it was, he was, I think, probably unequal. He had so much physical ability and just a, such a likable guy, um, good teammate, fun to be around. Um, I remember, it's interesting because I just got back from Seattle, right? I was out there this past weekend. And I remember my first trip out there with the Royals. We were, it was my first time with the first year with the Royals, so it was 90. And I remember it was after the game, and everybody was getting back on the bus to head back to the hotel from the Kingdom. And I remember people, the crowds were just, because that was right in the middle of Bo knows, you know, Bo knows this and Bo knows that. And, you know, he was on huge billboards in L.A. And, you know, it was just, he was a phenomenon. And I remember looking at people looking right past George Brett, future Hall of Famer, to try to get a glimpse of Bo Jackson, <laughs> thinking, wow, that's, that's some, that was memorable to me. <laughs> um, and Bo was so gracious about I mean, just such a good guy. And um, um, just, you know, the, the stuff you, you always heard about Bo and, you know, just his persona. He was like, he was so comfortable in his own skin. Even though he knew, you know, everybody knew that, you know, this is an athlete that is a two-sport star, not just a two-sport player, but a star in both leagues, um, who has literally the keys to the kingdom on both fields. Right. And yet he's sitting across the locker room from me and just, you know, joking around. And I remember one time I looked at him and I said, Bo, what the heck is a war eagle? (laughs) <laughs> and he looked at me, and he goes, you know, Bo stammered a little bit, and he kind of stuttered a little bit. You looking at one? <laughs> I, went, I went, okay, that's, that's cool. But he's he's just, you know, just a good guy, and uh, you know, just just I almost drove off the road the morning going to spring training down here in Florida when they. Uh, announced that Bo Jackson had been released. I literally almost drove off the road. And I went, wow, that's one of those moments in, in, in life where it's like you remember where you were when 9-11 went down. Not quite that 
momentous. But, you know, it was one of those moments in life you're going, wow, they really did that. Yeah, it was sad. Yeah, you're kind of like, are you kidding me? Why would you do that? I mean, it's just, it gave me great, it, it made me question significantly um, management at that time yeah. with with Kansas City. Yeah. And I think, you know, Herc Robinson was the GM at that time and you know, so that was uh that was a shocker. That yeah. was a shocker. So nineteen ninety one then you began back in Omaha and then you came up one final time to to K C in June. You had four appearances all in relief. And then the Royals released you on July sixteenth of ninety. How tough was that? That was very hard. That was very hard. Here again in that the general manager that we just talked about, it was, uh, I really felt like there are some non-baseball people making baseball decisions, um, you know, guys that have never played the game, guys that had, uh, you know, a couple, a couple things happened. Part of it was my fault. Um, Hal McRae was the manager, and I got along really well with Hal. And I remember we were in Detroit. And I had made a calculation that if I did get released, that I would be picked up shortly, and it was going to be by the Detroit Tigers because we were in Detroit. I was throwing well. Detroit is my home. You know, Lakeland, Florida is where I live. That's where they have their spring training. You know, blah, blah, blah. It was a perfect fit for me. They needed help in the bullpen. Um you know, it would be great to have spring training and play in Detroit and have spring training in Lakeland, finish out my career with the with the Tigers. Um, but I, I really I made a poor decision. It was a bad, poor career decision on my part, as it, as, in my mind, as it turned out. And uh, so when they were going to send me back down to Omaha and – I got really frustrated and angry and prideful, and I did not consult anybody about it. I just I made the decision. You know what? This this is wrong, and I'm going to show them. And so I made a I made a rash decision, which ended up basically ending my career, hmm. because they were going to send me down. And what happened was, um, as it turned out like three days or four or five days later or a week later or something like that, I think Steve Crawford went on the DL. And I would have been right back up there in Kansas City. But it didn't happen because I chose to take my release. I was going to go through waivers. This is my world, my mind. I was going to take my release, go through waivers, then get picked up by the, by the Detroit Tigers and then go, just basically go across the field and go into the other locker room and become a Detroit Tiger. Well, it didn't happen, <clears throat> and uh, I took my release. I went through waivers, no phone calls, and then finally the Milwaukee Brewers offered me an opportunity to go play in AAA in Denver, finish out the year, and uh, and so I did, but it was just a really bad decision on my part, and uh, it was a good life lesson to learn about making decisions when big decisions when you're angry or frustrated or emotionally engaged those are usually not the good times to make big decisions right 
And as it turned out, um, that was the last time I saw the big leagues. And um, I have nobody to blame other than myself for making a bad decision. But you know what? It wasn't a fatal decision. It was just a bad decision. And life has moved on, and, you know, we are still good. So, But it would have been nice to have been able to play another, you know, year or two or three or five there's you know there's never a guy out there that really you know even Derek Jeter I'm sure you know it'd be great to play some more years it just would be but you know very few guys get to choose how they retire or when they retire uh very few very few usually people get retired yeah um but it was uh you know unfortunate but I wouldn't trade a, a day in the big leagues for anything, though, just about. Well, you had your best years, obviously, probably with Montreal, but your favorite memories of Kansas City, uh, both on and off the field, and, and did you have any favorite areas of town or anything when you were here? Well, let's see. My favorite areas on the field, you know, um, to be able to rub shoulders with guys like like George and, you know, uh, Bo, certainly, um, you know, Kurt Stillwell, a good friend. Kevin Seitzer still stays, you know, still a, a, a very dear friend of mine. To throw to a guy like, you know, Mike McFarland, he was an excellent receiver, a good catcher. Um, just to hang out with guys like that, uh, that's a big deal. I mean, those are neat memories. Um, Kansas City, from a fan base perspective, great fans. Midwest, you know, it's like Cincinnati in many respects. St. Louis, you know, good, solid baseball people. They know the game. They've been around the game a long time. Uh, unlike the fans in Montreal who are, uh, at times they were, you know, if you were doing well, it was good. But if you're not doing well, eh, you know, not so much. But with Kansas City, man, these people were fan. They were loyal fans and uh, educated fans. Good Midwestern folks, good culture, good you know, good people. Uh, great place to play. I love the travel. You know, when you play in Kansas City or St. Louis, you know the longest road trip is only three hours, whichever way you go. Yeah. Whether you go to the East Coast or the West Coast or you know to Texas or Minnesota or wherever you go, it's not a long trip. Seattle might be the longest, but you know for the most part. It's pretty centrally located and easy to get around, and and uh, I have no regrets or no negative things really about Kansas City at all. It was a great place to play. It was a great place to play. Have you been back since '91 ever? Nope, I sure haven't. Ah. I I have just you know it's flyover country. I went right over it on uh, <laughs> yesterday. Yeah. But uh, no, I really. I don't. I don't have any business ties there. I don't have any uh, clients in the Kansas City area. Um, I've got some good friends that live there still, obviously. Uh, Brian Holman, who's a former Major League player, he's a he's reti- He lives there in Kansas City now. I talk to him regularly. Obviously, Seitzer still lives there. Um, I'm sure Max still lives there, but I haven't talked to him in a while. But you know, I, I really don't have a reason to go there yet. So maybe someday soon. 
Yeah, you got to see the new the new uh, improvements they've made to the stadium. You probably won't believe it. The grass and the outfield and the seats oh, and everything. That's one memory I do remember about Kansas about so how hot it was. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, with the AstroTurf out there, <laughs> that was so crazy. I used to do one thing during batting practice. I would stand in the shadows of the light tower, <laughs> and when the shadows moved, that's when I moved. I didn't chase a foul ball. I didn't run after any fly balls. I didn't do nothing. I just stayed in the shadows and watched everybody sweat to death. <laughs> and, uh, oh, brutal, 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 brutal hot. Well, yeah. uh, so in summary then, so what would you like to say to Royals fans listening right now? Thank you. Thank you for accepting a, a new guy on the team and uh, wel- welcoming us, me and my family, I'd like to thank you know, Mr. Sherholtz for for taking a chance on me, you know, picking me up when I was a free agent in '90. Um, I'd like to say thanks to all the teammates I had, and just I enjoyed my time as a Royal. It was a good time of my life.